What's up, bingers? Happy Wednesday, and thanks for listening. I've got another great show for you today, but before we roll the interview, I want to ask you a quick favor. If you're enjoying the show, and I'm sure you are, then please do me a quick solid and jump on iTunes and leave us a review. It only takes 30 seconds, and it really, really does help us out. And also, tell your friends. Let's really get to work building this awesome true crime community. You'd be amazed at how effective organic social media posts are when it comes to building our audience. So please, let the world know how you feel about True Crime Binge. And now, on with the show. I'm joined today by the hosts of the fantastic and informative Killing It on Broadway podcast. These are two legit Broadway actresses who pivoted to true crime podcasting when the pandemic put them out of work. Welcome my new friends, Jennifer Samard and Jessica Vosk. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I am rolling. I'm rolling too. And Bob, I'd like to know what the wall is behind you. And how is that wallpaper or is that actual wood? It is actual wood, sort of. It is. um, Damn it. It's like super thin panels, like package you buy at Lowe's and stick together. Very easy to install. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's a nice little background compared to what I used to have in our old little closet we recorded in. Excellent. I, gosh, I need this thing to pop your names up. Jennifer, your background, you look like you were in in a dungeon or something. It's very dark where you're at. Yeah, uh, I am in a what used to be, I guess, a man cave bar, so to speak. And uh, my, husband has, my husband has hung, of course, sound deadening material. So I've got those blue packing blankets hung all around me. So it does make it look like a little bat cave. So you are correct. But it's, it's actually, if we strip these all down, it would just be a normal normal basement. <laughs> <laughs> and Jessica, I see you share my affinity for having a plant over my shoulder. Uh, is that an actual plant? Of Bob, of course it is. Listen, I have in, in, <laughs> in quarantine, I have become um, mother of plants. Uh, and, Je- Jessica, and this tell, is... him, tell him the name of the plant. Oh my God. Maybe it has a name. Of course it does. Well, you know, we're theater actors. We're, you know, nothing without drama. But this is, uh, she, she, when I bought her, she was down there and now she's grown. And, uh, you know, in, uh, I love Laura Dern. So I, her name's Flora Dern. Um, <laughs> so, so, but there's lots of plants around this old pad because what the hell else was I supposed to do last year? You know, I grew my plants outside last year. I did, I did start a garden last year for the first time ever because like you said, what the hell else was there to do? Mm-hmm. So I planted a garden. What'd you grow? Well, mostly squash, for, because what I didn't know about growing a garden, I planted all sorts of things. I had tomatoes, and I had different cabbages, and lettuces, and green beans, and Brussels sprouts, and broccoli. I had this, this huge, huge oh, garden. God. And then I put several different types of squash, because my wife loves squash. Uh, what I didn't know is that squash will just take over 
anything. It, the the plants grew. The acorn squash plant grew like twelve feet by twelve feet wide and just ate everything. Wow. Else. Yeah, it was like a little shop of horrors. Did you didn't have rodents or other things eating your vegetables? Did you? Well, I put, I, I built a fence around because okay. we do. I live out in the country, so there, there is a concern of rabbits and deer. So they were okay. Every once in a while, a raccoon would get in and break my fence because they were they were getting so fat from eating all the squash that they were crushing the top of the fence. May I ask you one more question? Do you have a problem uh, since yes, you Jessica, interview pod- Jennifer? Jennifer, I don't. Do you have a problem when you interview podcasters that they turn around and start interviewing you? Sorry, because we're like, no, Tell us I about love it because then I don't have to think of things to <laughs> to discuss. I do have a, I do have a uh, a request from you though, Jessica. So I have a plant over here. See, this is my. That is my ficus tree. It's the exact yeah. same size as it was when I got it to put yeah. it in a little secret. It's there for sound dampening more than anything else, but also sure. it's very pretty. Um, I've never thought to name it, but now I'm jealous. And maybe you could help me come up with a name for my ficus tree in my studio. That's not a problem. I'm happy to do it. Um, I take it. I take <laughs> it with great honor. I'm. I will. I'm going to think of it, and I'm going to get you a name back because every plant deserves a real embarrassing name. In my opinion. Right. Even if they're made so, of plastic? Even if they're made of plastic. Half the half of the people I know are made of plastic, Bob. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, and, and all, I, I still love them too. So, so any plant, plastic or real, deserves, deserves a pretty great name. And I, I love the word ficus anyway. So it's got to go with the word ficus. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of possibilities to go with, with ficus. Absolutely. You used to be a firefighter, right? There's some alliteration there. Is that correct, or am I right. wrong? A lot of Fs. A lot of Fs. Yeah, firefighter, ficus. Yeah, Fido I mean, the ficus. I can ficus. see something. I can Fido see the wheels the turning. ficus. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, you've got two actor writers. Before it's over, I'm going to need a name. And then let's get into you guys a little bit, because I, I, ha- I have done a little bit of my homework. You guys are like kind of a big deal on Broadway. Gen- now, am I getting your last name? Is it, is it Simard? Is that how you pronounce your last name, Jennifer? That is correct, sir. Yes. I'm very good with last names. Last names and plastic plants. Those are my superpowers. Oh, honey. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're, you're a Tony nominee? Yes. I, fortunately, luckily, that, well, yes. Delightfully, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll start with you. All right. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, because somehow, somehow you went from a Broadway actress. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else you do on Broadway. I'm a little bit hillbilly, so you guys mm-hmm. are going to be filling me in a lot on what goes on in the theater. Yes. But somehow you went from that to making a true crime podcast. And I assume still, you know, if things ever open back up again, we'll still be doing some some acting. Yes. I, during the, sh- when the shutdown happened a year ago, March, I was about to open the Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's company. Uh, I had a, the role of Sarah and uh, it was one of the highlights of my life. And luckily, that show will be coming back, presumably this fall of 2021. Uh, and yes, I'm a, I'm a Broadway actress. Um, as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to get a Tony nomination, and that was for a show named Disaster. I was a gambling nun, Sister Mary Downey. And it was a show written by my dear friends, Seth Rudetsky and Jack Plotnick, which made it even more special, because how often do you get to work with buddies? So... That was that, and I've been—I mean, I've been doing this since in, in New York since 1992, and of course, all of us had to pivot a bit in our industry when the pandemic hit, which is the birth of this podcast. So Jess and I like to talk a lot about making lemonade out of lemons, 
And uh, I will get to how this all formed later if you want, but essentially this formed out of the pandemic as uh, because we were looking to do something creative. Uh, which we creative types really need to do. It's like drinking water for us. So I'm, I don't know that we would have launched it had the pandemic not happened. So that is definitely some lemonade from this terrible year where people have lost so much. Was it an idea that was kind of in the works and then the, the, the pandemic sprung it into action? Or was it like, what the hell are we going to do now? And then the idea came. So I was writing something true crime adjacent. And I had sent it to a screenwriter friend of mine for notes. And I was looking to rewrite it. And because it was based on this topic of true crime, when we hung up from that call, I thought to myself, oh, goodness, I think I want to do a true crime podcast. It's what I happen to listen to. When I am at work, between shows, since you said you didn't know a lot about theater, there are day, there are two shows a week, two days a week where we have what we call two show days. And inevitably on those two show days, I would see other actors and actresses and musicians and stagehands, et cetera, with headphones like mine. And I'd be saying, Hey, what are you listening to? I said, inevitably nine times out of 10, it was a true crime podcast. So I, I guess the brainchild started last August uh, in this specific genre, although the topic has interested me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I put out a shout out on Instagram to a couple of close friends. And I, just as a poll to see if there was any market out there for this concept of marrying Broadway and true crime. And Jessica, I said, if you're interested, give me a thumbs up back. And every friend that responded did give me a thumbs up back, but Jessica's the only one who added to it. And she not only gave me a thumbs up back, she wrote in huge capital letters all day, every day, that she's into true crime all day, every day. And I started corresponding with her. It's the middle of the night. And I was just going to do it. I don't follow directions. I just don't follow. <laughs> like, give me a thumbs up. That's not, you yeah. know, you're going to get like, rare, rare. You will not be she... silenced. No, honey. So I was just going to do it myself. And then I couldn't sleep because I think we, we sort of started really connecting online, so to speak. And I, the next morning I said, geez, maybe it should be the both of us. So I, I pitched it to Jessica and here we are. So we're a team so, now. So wait, were you guys like like good friends before this? Or did you guys just like meet on the interwebs over this? Colleagues, wouldn't you say, Jessica? We were friendly colleagues. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the theater industry, it, the New York Broadway scene is so much smaller than than anyone would think it is. It's very tiny. The circle is, you know, it gets smaller and smaller. The, the more work that you do, the more that you work. You're, you're in the same circles as the usual suspects, the the higher you climb the ladder, I guess you could say. Um, so Jen and I, you know, either I would see a concert she was doing, or maybe she would see something I was doing. You co- you're constantly running into each other. So and the two of us knew who each other were. So um, and of course, we followed each other on the on the ever helpful social media. And so that's how kind of everything was born. And when you throw something like, are you interested in true crime out into the ether? And you have someone like me, who's basically that I must have a problem. It's all I listen to. Mm-hmm. So I was like, sign me up, honey. Sis, I am in it to win it. Um, and uh, because I really do, I'm like, I don't know about you, Bob, but I constantly feel like, was I supposed to be a lawyer in a past life? Am I like, what, or was I a killer? Um, did so, what, what did I do? Um, Very dark. 
I know, Bob, but but like, but I'm so obsessed with it all. If you throw, I mean, every true crime podcast, every documentary. So naturally, I said to Jen, "Pick me, pick me." And here, yes, here we are. Oh, I I definitely have the should I have been a lawyer or an investigator? Because you know, you I dig into the especially our on uh, my other show on Truth and Justice where we like pick apart. Yes. A case over an entire season. We're looking at all these details. And then I find myself reading trial transcripts. And I'm like, I'm like I object. Why didn't he object to this? I should have been there. <laughs> if I'd been there, this would have been okay. Because, you know, I've, I've yet to grasp the concept of hindsight, how it's so much easier to look at it, you know, 20 years later and know what you would have done differently than the attorney that was <sighs> there in the moment. Yeah. But, but I definitely have that feeling. So, so Jessica, what you're obviously also on Broadway. That's how you get you guys connected. So, so what might people know you from? Maybe if they uh, well popped into a the theater. Sh- the, yeah, or sure. They popped projects. into a theater. Oh uh, yeah, I've done a lot of a lot of things. Uh, probably the thing that that people most know me for is the show Wicked. I played the Green Witch. Her name is Elphaba. I was painted green every day for a little over two years. Um, I did it for a year on tour, and then a year for the fifteenth anniversary on Broadway. Um, I did, uh, my, my Broadway debut is a show called The Bridges of Madison County. And then I did the show Finding Neverland, where we had first time Broadway producer as our boss, Harvey Weinstein. We'll cover that later. Uh, and then we went to Fiddler on the Roof. Oh yeah, Bob. We went to Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. Um, and then I, then I did Wicked. Um, and as the, as the coronavirus, um, which I lovingly decided to refer to as the Coco Roro. Um, as that came into into the world, uh, I had been doing a new show, and we were in rehearsals. It's a show called Becoming Nancy, and put together with a Broadway team, and we were in rehearsals. And on a Friday, they shut down Broadway, and we went home, and they said, maybe we'll see you guys in two weeks. And here we are. Yeah, remember when we paused for two weeks? I, I go back to my memories, and I'm like, oh, the day 16, when I thought I was going to be out by day 20. And so, and now here we are a year later. It's wild. What a nightmare. And you know, for for someone that is not in that world, right? Myself, my friends, my wife and I have been just bitching and complaining for the last year about how there's no shows. We can't go see live music. We this sucks so bad. And it wasn't until just two weeks ago, last week. Um, we took our first vacation in over a year, and my wife and I went to Las Vegas. Ooh. And we got there, and it's not the Las Vegas experience because you know most everything's the, the buffets are still closed. Everything you know, it's you know, woe is me, right on my vacation. But when we were there, uh, there was one show that was that was running that we wanted to see, and we went to we went to go see. It was called Absinthe. I don't know if you ever heard of the show. No, it's kind of sounds a, sassy. It is sassy. It's like yeah. uh, it's it's very adult only. Uh, Cirque du Soleil for grownups with a lot of F-words um, and a lot of sex appeal. So it was a very fun show. Do they make you drink absinthe while you watch the show? Uh, they don't make you, but mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing it might have been an option. <laughs> I was going to say, if it's if it's called absinthe, like you either hallucinate while you're seeing the show or, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> thereafter. But the green fairy. They should have been serving think, absinthe mm-hmm. to everyone. But, you know, it's a very small, it's always been a small <laughs> venue. So that's why I think why they got to open up. It's like this, it's like a tent with little tables in there. It's very intimate, mm. um, the setting. And so the, in the, the actors uh, and performers were, you know, they, they, would, they would talk to you. Like one of them kept messing up his trick. 
and it is something he he just said something like I'm give it back, and it was very funny because he he just kept trying it no matter how many times he messed it up, and he's like I've been off work for a year, I'm not getting laid off again. Give me that, <laughs> and it, like for some reason yes. it just occurred to me him. Or those people, and then we did like the gondola ride through the Venetian, and I didn't realize the the woman that was like like pushing our gondola around said that they don't get to sing. That there's all like auditions for that because they sing in Italian while you go through it. And mm-hmm. she was telling us all the shows that she was in, and it like all of a sudden became started feeling very selfish as a consumer of theater and and entertainment like that. That I was upset that I, I didn't get to go see it and have fun. It's like it never occurred to me, and I think a lot of people didn't occur, like, what it's like for you, who that's your job, that's your livelihood, and even beyond a paycheck, I can imagine, that, that even, like, that's your craft, that you don't get to to, to practice, and it, it, it has to have been really, really, a really difficult year for the two of you and everyone in your business. Yeah, I, I'll, I, I'll speak for myself. First of all, there's perspective, right, about all the people who've lost loved ones. And it that requires the most understanding and empathy, of course. But there are other things to survival, and a job and a paycheck are things that can feed you, house you, keep you clothed. And so there are a lot of people mm-hmm. suffering, and not just actors, ticket takers, the hotel industry staff, restaurant workers. There are these satellite businesses that support the Broadway community. And this is a billion-dollar industry for the state of New York. So it's definitely difficult in that regard. It's also difficult, if I might say, emotionally, when we're taught as children, follow your dreams. Go for your dreams. And it was such a splash of water in the face. Hi, Wicked Witch. I hope you don't melt, Jessica. Um, but it was... Um, oh, sorry about it. Sorry. Oh, dad jokes. Sorry. Dad jokes. Yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm the older one. It's my job. Uh, I but, like uh, it. <laughs> um, but it was such a splash of cold water in the face because it sort of happened overnight and you're left feeling uh, non-essential because obviously there are all these essential jobs, 100%. No one, no one argues that. But to it starts to make you feel like, oh, should should I have even chosen this for a living? All that stuff because you all you want to do is help and you literally feel helpless, you know? So I, I think we'll be tapped when we're able to gather in groups again because it is helpful. And that's the great thing about the arts. It helps people process their feelings and emotions. And I now know why the Roaring Twenties were called the Roaring Twenties. And we will have a century later, I predict, another Roaring Twenties because people are going to want to gather go out. I can't wait to be bumped into in a bar, something I used to hate. Now I'm like, please bump into me, you know, step on my toes. I can't wait. And I can't wait to share art with people and help people feel and process their emotions through laughter and tears, frankly. I can't wait. So that's my I, I yeah. think it's, it's so incredible, though, that you guys were able to make that pivot and not sit back. I mean, I had a very different scale, but like this show was born from that for me, you know, I was, you know, with, with Truth and Justice, I was in the middle of a case and the woman we were trying to help died of COVID in prison, had oh to shift God. to a new case, Oof. couldn't get documents. All the, every, the records divisions were closed, couldn't do anything. So oh. lot, much like you, it was like, this is my life. I have to do something. So we just, we got this idea to create this new format. It started on Truth and Justice before it came here just to, just, just to do something. It, it was forced to pivot. And you guys. For me, that was a very, it was a very little sidestep. You guys went from from right field to left field where you went, well, since we can't do our musical, let's make a true crime podcast and talk about murder. 
I mean, you, and uh, yeah, the, the, the thing is, I am no stranger to pivoting. I used to work in finance before I decided to do Broadway. So I was like the Wall Street person out of college who had a job in Manhattan and, you know, did it for three and a half, three years. And, uh, and then said, I don't love what I'm doing. So I'm going to try for Broadway. And my, of course, my parents at the time were like, no, um, <laughs> because you know, they were like, you have a real people job. And so it's very interesting now, like Jen said, you know, we're there doing our thing. New York City without Broadway is really not New York City. You go, you go into the city, I'll be going in today. And you walk around Midtown and you're so used to either seeing your friends on the street being like, how'd your show go? Uh, or, you know, where are you grabbing dinner tonight? Because that's our, that's our bread and butter of being in Manhattan. So it's been all of that aside being taken away. And then you have, we're like little, I, I, I would say my spirit animal is a squirrel. I'm, I liken myself to like the little squirrel who just like cannot stop the, the little hustle to get the nuts. And so if I'm, I was sitting around being like, what can I possibly do? You know, I went and got my real estate license. Jen was doing courses in, in uh, psychology and, cr- and true crime. or cr- Yeah, cr- criminology and forensic psychology. Yeah. And then we just sort of, you know, and then this was born and this happened. And it's been so fun to do. A lot of work, don't, don't get me wrong, as you well know. But, uh, but, but it's been a cool thing to, to feel like, um, like we have more purpose than we did when our, when our business shut down. And it's been back and forth of, well, we think it's going to open now. Uh, wait one second. And then we think it's going to, so it, we're kind of in this, you know, weird brain time warp of when is it really going to open up? Because it's got to feel like one of the, it seems like it's right around the corner, but it's never going to get here. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the frustration of not being able to work. We have this frustration with a lot of like simple things that we do for entertainment, but for you, for your job, like, Maybe next month, maybe next mm. month, maybe next month. Yeah. You know, with this whole pivot you guys made. And it's, it's funny, too, as I'm sitting here, I mean, we come from very different places in life, very, di- very different backgrounds. But like the stories, and I see this time and time again when I interview other uh, podcasters, like there's so many parallels. You know, you, were, you, you worked in finance and decided to chase your dream and go into Broadway. I was a, in, I was a, a firefighter. My parents, you, you talk about parents, but you're going to do what? What's a podcast? Uh, you're mm-hmm. leaving your government job to go, to go do oh, what? Oh yeah. yeah. Even worse, Bob. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there, there's just so many parallels there, but I, it's like you're, you're both of your creativity like shines through in, because I mean, the true crime podcast space isn't an easy space to pop into. I got in, I was lucky when I started doing this and 2015 everybody was like cereal are there more of these and so we just started right. making them yeah now there's literally millions of true crime podcasts so right. to to break out into the space is very difficult and you guys managed to do that because you did it in a very creative way where you know your show it, it's it's two of you who are are broadway actors but you also you're you're very sharp you have some background a little bit in in criminal justice but then each episode you bring on another Broadway or celebrity and talk about a case from their state. And it's like that, that was, it seems like that was, I mean, you not only came into this late in the game, but you came into it at a time where a lot of people were doing just what you did. It's Mm -hmm. a pandemic and there people are just trying to find something to do. 
and and you you rose through that all with this unique concept where you you talk about a crime from their state. It's a fun conversation. It's comedic, but I think respectful too. I mean, it was it was it, it was a really interesting. So whose whose idea was the format, or was this just like a, a brain trust the the two of you that came up with it? Oh, I get I give Jen that that credit. She she had the the brainchild of sort of like, wouldn't this be a fun idea? And then you know, then it became like a collaboration station between the two of us. But we we well knew that that it was also the true crime space was was quite saturated. I mean, we kind of knew that coming in because number one, the two of us listened, and or I'll speak for myself. Anytime there's a new true crime podcast, I'm always like, oh, God, gotta listen, and I'll binge the entire thing. And that's where my you know I'm like, okay, what's next? And 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 of course. Back in 2015, of course, that started with cereal. Have you heard of cereal? Did you listen to cereal? Oh my god! Um, and so it was this this big thing. But but the concept itself um, came from Jen, and then we put our heads together of sort of um, how are we going to do it, and who are we going to ask? And it turned out that like Kristen Chenoweth, who's a huge you know celebrity and friend of ours, she came on, and, and we had no idea that she was uh, she's from Oklahoma. We did the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And she was supposed to be there that night in the Girl Scout troop. And we had no idea. When you brought her on, Kristen, on for that first episode, and that's kind of a, a pivot into uh, the case that we're going to talk about today, which was the, the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, which was like the first case you guys did. Mm-hmm. Did you guys really not know the personal connection that Kristen had with that when she came on no. that episode? Because if not, it's hard to tell because, you know, you're actresses, because you seemed surprised. Yeah. But I feel like you could fake seeming surprised. And we can, Bob. We can. I can fake seeming <laughs> surprised all the time. Uh, in fact, any time a guy I date brings me flowers or any time I know that there's a surprise on the rise, if we're like, you know, heading to dinner, or there's, I, 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 I can do it. I can absolutely fake it. Um, no, no. I, so I, I'm absolutely able to. But I will say. With um, complete 100% truth, we had no clue. And the two of us, the two of us were like, holy shit. Yeah, we want, I mean, we wanted, it was sort of proof of concept in action. We, we, she chose the case. And that was her, that was all that she told us. And because we are true crime fans, uh, I'll, you know, I'll speak of my favorite murder. Who, do, who doesn't love my favorite murder? And I think they talked about, I think Georgia was telling the story. Georgia Hardstark, that is. And like a lot of true crime podcasts, they say 144 Girl Scouts arrived at Camp Scott. What we didn't know is that Kristen Chenrith would have made it 145. Like that is a true story. And she got sick and she had a fever and she couldn't go. And we were, we were absolutely dumbfounded. Yeah, these were f- schoolmates of hers. Well, yeah. And it's, it's a horrific story as it is. And it just gets that much like that interview. I was fascinated. I mean, so a lot, I do a lot of these, right? So before I do an interview, I, if it's a podcast I'm not entirely familiar with, I always listen to some of it to get an idea of the feel and who the hosts are, and then study up on the case a little bit. And this was definitely one where I started listening to guys, okay, I, I, I kind of feel, feel the groove these these ladies are putting down here. And then 45 minutes later, I'm still sitting at my desk, just fascinated, <laughs> listening to the story and, and Kristen's connection to it. And so what we're going to talk, let me give it a, little, a quick little breakdown of this case. So it's technically still an unsolved case from 1977. Mm-hmm. So this was June 13th, 1977. 
at, as you said, Camp Scott in Mays, Oklahoma. It wasn't. It was like the first night of camp, wasn't it? Like there was like a thunderstorm. Did, did, did the camp just begin? Yep. It was the. It was the first evening. Big old like as Kristen will will has said to us, um, and also said on her episode. You know, this is a big deal. It was a big deal. They were. She was super excited. She of course got sick and couldn't go. But it was. It was like it was a big you know Girl Scout trip. Yeah. Huge camp out and the rainstorm came out of nowhere to your point yeah that it just was like within an hour there were 40 mile per hour wind gusts and half an inch of rain and it was just a very eerie first night well and it's a, it was a different time too because sometimes i you know i think i have four kids so i think i think of like my kids and missing camp and like was that really big deal but it was such a different time like like to go to a summer camp in the 70s would have been like I can only imagine for Kristen Chenoweth, the your, your guest, what a what a horrible thing that was for her to miss because you don't have the internet and cable TV and video games and iPhones and iPads and all these different things that occupy kids' time nowadays. Like right. that was the big event that she was going to do for her for her summer, and she didn't get to go. But then, so camp starts. There's a there's a storm the first night, and then some genius who designed this camp, which was shut down, mm-hmm. like, right, obviously, right after this. <laughs> yeah. But they put one, and, and from what I was, I, I was, like, looking at maps and stuff online, I'm kind of fascinated by all this. It's very Delphi-ish, the, the case, to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it would have been even more so if there was the media that there is now, back then. But from what I was reading, there's one tent that is put, like, 100 yards away, or I think precisely 86 yards away from, like, uh, from where the counselors' tents are, it's like secluded back away from on the other side of where the showers are at, and that's where these these particular these three little girls. Uh, they were Lori Farmer, who was eight years old, Doris Milner was ten years old, and Michelle Guse uh, Guse Guse, who was nine years old. These three, so you have an eight, nine, and a ten year old staying in a tent on the other side of the camp with a, the shower between her and any adults, to, to them between any adults, and someone that night breaks into the tent, they're beaten, they're raped, they're strangled, and then their bodies are put out on the, like, the path where it would mm-hmm, be discovered. Yes. And the camp counselor the next morning goes to the shower and, and finds their body. Yeah. And then I, I read, like, they, like, there was an attempted cover-up, kind of? Yeah, I mean... I- I don't, I can't, I, yes, all of this is a yes. I, I still can't get past the fact that, can you imagine these days if that were to, if 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 a counselor was not near three kids in their sleeping tent, those those ages, can you just imagine now, I think to myself, this would never be the case now. There would at least be three counselors per one child. I mean, this, the, n- none of it makes sense. The entire thing to me, it blew my mind because because of, how fast it happened. There were, I mean, as we'll, as we'll probably discuss, you know, things leading up to this where you would think that something bad could happen um, that nobody really paid attention to and how the children were found. And it's, it's just, it's the craziest thing ever. And then you hear from Kristen who could have been in that tent because there was one person missing from the actual trip. Uh, but, uh, but as far as cover up, Jen? Well, I remember the, I think, I think, I'm not sure cover up is the phrase I that comes to mind for me as much as I think the camp counselor 
the the camp ranger Ben Woodward, he found he's one of the people that found the bodies and covered up the girls. And I think that's is that what you're talking about, Bob? Well, I just I just read somewhere and it was a little blurb that the camp counselors sent all the kids home and like gave them a cover story so that they wouldn't you know their parents didn't know that there was this horrible. Yes. Triple homicide that occurred there. There's not much of a cover-up because the police were there. Right. I know that there was some talk that they should have done more, if you recall, Jessica, before camp started. There was an issue. That's right. There was an issue with um, like a month before, a month before when the, a month before when the counselors were in training, there was a break-in. And a lot of people thought if only they had known, they shouldn't have opened camp for the girls or they should have, they should have investigated that more. In other words, there was an incident of of theft and the stealing of the donuts, Jessica, I think. Remember that? Yeah. That wasn't pursued properly, according to mm-hmm. a lot of people. That was that was certainly covered up. And as you know, and it, and it was yeah, like stealing of the donuts and leaving some other shit behind. And as you know, it's, uh, you know, it's just so bizarre. But nobody talked about the fact that somebody came in to the camp and for all intents and purposes, probably surveyed the area and where everything was going to be set and where every tent was going to be. And and the counselors and the people who ran the campsite knew about this uh, vandalism attempt and knew about this thing before camp took place. So you would think that they would say something, but they that that they certainly covered up. They didn't say a word. The whole scenario before it even happened had like the makings of every horror movie from the eighties, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, as, as I'm like reading about it, it's like they they're going to this campsite and they have three little girls in this remote place, and there's been somebody they know has been in the in the campground that hasn't been there before. And then there's a big storm that mm-hmm. night. I mean, it was like this wasn't even I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but this wasn't even difficult for the offender to do this. It's like they invited him in to do it. Yeah. And I yeah. and to that point, it was um I, I found that quote by the way. So they the, so basically a month before this account a counts a counselor's cabin was ransacked and the only thing that went missing was a box of donuts and there was a note that was left with it saying, quote, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent number one. This happened two months before, and they attributed they attributed it to a prank. Yeah, that's the – so I, I read a blurb about that and wanted – so – but I, I, I couldn't find the actual note online when I was scouring through. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the note literally said, I'm going to kill three little girls in yeah. tent number one. Yeah. Yeah. And they thought, well, let's put three little girls in tent number one and see what happens. I mean – And that that's the other thing we talked with Kristen about. Every other tent, I believe, had four little girls, and it was That's right. and it was tent number seven. There was a there was a mix up. I don't know if there were five girls in that tent, but she was anyway. Regardless, a little girl in tent number seven was supposed to be moved into tent number eight, but because of the rainstorm, they decided they would wait till the next day. So it very likely it it ought to have been in quotes ought to have been four young ladies who encountered this monster but you know it was only three but we had to we talked to Kristen where you have no idea what tent you were supposed to be in because we got scared why there are only three for all we know she could have been in tent number eight you know there was a fourth bed empty right can you real quick before I move through the rest because I want to get into like the suspects and stuff mm-hmm. uh, but I realized we skipped over the fact can you can you lay out who exactly Kristen Chenoweth 
is because she's she's kind of a big deal. <laughs> oh yeah, the biggest. You want to go, Jess? Like Emmy Award winner. <laughs> oh yeah, Tony winner. She's a to- Tony winner, Emmy Award winner. Um, fantastic friend. Uh, she also she played Glinda in Wicked. Um, at, we did not do it at the same time, but this that's how she and I got to know each other and become close. And she just if you, to know Kristen is to love her to know her if she talk like this she's got a very very well voice right. like this and she just um you know any film that you watch where she's you know like four Christmases I always talk about this a show that she and I did together on Broadway a couple of years ago now I got on stage and I said you know Kristen nobody talks about it but I loved you in Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn you were just fabulous and she's she's so good she's so funny she's done everything that you can possibly think of she's she's as humble as she is uh talented and um she also happens to be an extreme fan of true crime if not more so than jennifer and myself to the to the point where she is she's coming back on the show to discuss a huge you know huge crime spree and this was of her own volition and wants to come back on she if you do not have me back on i'm gonna be so upset so she's also just like the <laughs> cutest little thing ever, Southern charm for days, but she's got a lot of sass and we love her to pieces. And the, the last thing that we thought we would in- encounter in our, in our very first episode as podcasters was the fact that, you know, she was supposed to be there. And it's, and it's been kind of a running theme ever since that whoever has come on the podcast, um, not everybody, but certain people have connections to where the crime took place or they knew the person, or they had, you know, something to do with uh, a person who was involved in that specific crime. Uh, And it's been wild to hear people talk about these stories, but nothing really more wild than thinking, gosh, what if Kristen was there that night? And she was so gutted to not be able to go on this trip. Like she was so she she said all she, she cried to her mom. And she was so angry, like just completely beside herself that she couldn't go on this trip and then cut to the fact where she, you know, had to go to school after all this happened and, you know, face the the kids or the parents of the, the kids who met this unfortunate fate, knowing that she could have been there. It's just, it's wild, but, but she is, she's an incredible person. So we can't wait to have her back on. Yeah. She was a great guest. Very good. Yeah. And, and so now getting back to the case, Mm-hmm. The police like almost immediately decide, and I, I was a little curious how they narrowed in on this guy so quickly without you know any physical evidence or anything. But the guy named the guy named Gene Leroy Hart, uh, who happens to be a Cherokee Native American, and he had he had escaped jail what like four years before this. He had been convicted for like awful guy. He had been convicted for kidnapping and raping two pregnant women mm-hmm. and then he had escaped jail once before and then he escapes again in 73 and he's out on the run for four years and then pol- police from what it sounds like they narrowed right in and said must be him and they spent a year tracking him down and then they finally finally capture him and they think it's all over and then he goes to trial and he's acquitted mm-hmm. which is yeah. what leaves it unsolved there was one other suspect named, he was a, a farmer named Jack Schroff. And for a time, they I, the newspapers had a big hand in sort of making people think that he was the person. They called him the Slayer. They had, a, they had his picture with the headline, the Slayer. And he, yeah, and he was cleared, 
But, you know, the damage had already been done to his reputation a bit. And I think the camp ranger Ben Woodward was a suspect, but he was he was cleared. But then, of course, yeah, Jean Leroy, Jean Leroy Hart. And Kristen says, I, I thought, it, I don't know, I thought it was Leroy too, but she says Jean Leroy. Remember, Jess? That's how she pronounced it. Uh, you know what? I 100% don't remember that, but but I believe you because, <laughs> yes. because uh, you know, I got cocoa brain, my friend. And I, I got and you. I, um, but, but I believe you. And, and uh, I mean, but what a, you know, of course, investigators have to, to you know, f- try and narrow down who it is. But they came, to, they came to him pretty quickly. Not that he had a fantastic track record of, of why he had been incarcerated before or having been on the run. But they did, they did narrow down on him pretty fast. They did. And to your point, Bob, it was a battle over the evidence, ultimately, that led to his acquittal. Um, like Jean's shoe size, if I recall, was a size 11. And they found a footprint, shoe print at the crime scene that was only a nine and a half. So mm-hmm. that, that factored in. Um, but because he had escaped prison, he was remanded back to ser- serve out, this always made us laugh, the remainder of a 350-year sentence. So it's not like he was going to get out anytime soon. But no, you know, yeah. And he died. Am I, am yeah. I allowed to say oh, he, he, ends, he, he ends up dying? He died anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. a month after he was acquitted. Yes, while serving his three hundred and fifty year sentence. Mm-hmm. But then, when I was I was reading a little bit, I, I found a website. Uh, there's several books on this case. Uh, some of the book there's a, tent, a book called Tent Number Eight. One called The Camp Scott Murders. One called Someone Cry for the Children. And as I'm searching through, I found a website called GirlScoutMurders.com that had some information on there, and that's where I found out about. And that the another alternate suspect that it seems like everybody's very vague, uh, at least from what I found. I'm you'd think doing what I do, I'd be a better Googler, but I'm not. I'm the worst. But that everybody's very vague about what happened. But there's this guy, William Alton Stevens. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have you guys read into him at all? No, we didn't. No, we did not. Bob, no. Lay it on us. Tell us everything. So check this. <laughs> this dude is in Kansas, and he's in jail in Kansas. And his cellmate uh, notifies authority that this guy says, confesses to him that he killed these three little girls at uh, a campground in Oklahoma. And the, the police bring him in. And then the, the guy that says he confessed to him says he told him he was working in an oil rig at the time in the area and names a woman because they were there. You know, there was the whole there was like a red flashlight found at the scene with a fingerprint on it that was never identified. Names uh, the the guy who says he confessed to him says that he told him that he borrowed a flashlight from this woman. I don't remember her name, but gave gives a name. But it's it's all jumbled up, and this was all presented as defense at trial. The guy Stevens says, "I've never worked on an oil rig." I don't know. He denies everything. Right? They interview this woman, and she says, "Yes, I did lend him a flashlight. It was a red plastic flashlight that I loaned to this guy." So like, oh my God. it it seems like he might have done it. Oh, uh, but my that God. I think that was a big part of maybe at least the way I read it. And I want I actually want to read some of these books. By read, I mean listen. If they're not an audible, mm-hmm. then I probably won't. You know, <laughs> yeah, actually, I forgot how to actually read. <laughs> yes, but I can listen to them because uh, I'm I'm really curious about this guy because it seemed like that was kind of presented as an alternate suspect. I do recall, wow. yeah, I do recall now that you're telling me the story, reading up on that. And I think Kristen said she used to watch the news reports and 
she was enthralled by those stories. And but in her heart of hearts, she's like, oh no, it's Jean Leroy Hart. <laughs> um, but you know, I right. guess we'll never know a hundred percent. There was some DNA testing done, like what twelve years later in 1989, and it seemed like it must have been like mitochondrial DNA because they had like five samples, and three of them did. I can't say not match, but include Hart as the contributor. But they mm-hmm. said the the sam- with the sample it narrowed it down to one in seven thousand seven hundred Native Americans would also match that profile. Like kind of similar to what happened in like the West Memphis three case where it's not a nuclear DNA, it's mitochondrial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it narrows it down. So, I mean, that's pretty big. I mean, yes, probably him. Yeah. Like one yeah. in 7,000 yeah. Native American. And he happens to be. Yeah. 7,770. And it was the samples. It's too bad. They, they, de- they deemed them deteriorated that they couldn't, they so inconclusive therefore, but it was, yeah. If, and this was, um, I know in 2017, they found, they tried to, the sheriff had raised money to do even more testing with advancements in DNA, but I haven't been able to find anything about that per se. Uh, And I do want to tell you, Bob, that I misspoke before that the, the, forgive me, the victim's bodies were covered up by the the camp counselor's husband, Richard Day. I think I said it was the uh, ranger and that was incorrect. So pardon me. Good. There's a correction. We like to be accurate here on True Crime Binge. We must be, Bob. (laughs) Uh, uh, But I I also, I mean, uh, that's something about these stories, and I don't know about the two of you, that we we discussed so many stories that either took place in the 60s or the 70s, even the early 80s, and then, you know, have either been solved or close to solved through advancements in DNA. I find that to be incredible. I really do. And I... I, You know, that this case is no different in the fact that, you know, even though it was a mitochondrial DNA and, it, you know, one in 7,770 <laughs> to, to actually match that up. I mean, I just found it to be incredible. And we've, we've covered several of these cases where that's really, you know, 35 years later, the thing that puts the, puts the entire case together, solves the entire thing or acquits someone. Yeah. I, I'm always amazed when that happens. Yeah, where they get like an exact match on DNA from a case from the 70s or something like that. When you think about the foresight that those 1970s investigators had, because it's rare, it doesn't exist in a lot of cases, when DNA testing wasn't a thing, you know, we see it in the the Golden State Killer case, you see where just one of the detectives was like, we're we're going to preserve all these samples, the semen, the blood, because at some point, like he was quoted as saying, at some point, science is going to catch up to this and we'll be able to use this to find him. And it did, you know, oh. decades later. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's yeah. pretty incredible the foresight some of those really good detectives had back then. Oh, yeah. Do you have merchandise for your show, Bob? For this show? We do not. Not yet. Why? You have something? You have, you have an idea? Je- because of Jessica's passion, we want we to launch a campaign, hashtag bless DNA. Because so many of yeah. these okay. crimes are solved. <laughs> So hashtag bless yeah. DNA. Right, that would be. Um, now you've given it to me. I'm going to steal it. I'm okay, going to make great. a true crime binge merch store. It's and, you. Because <laughs> you don't want to deal with it any more than I want to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> I've made shirts. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, we we get it. Are you kidding? Um, yeah, it's. Uh, but we, you know, we there's a case that comes to mind where we discussed. Uh, I believe it was a ta- a case in Texas um, with uh, 
a friend of ours who it was his it was his um, schoolmate who was murdered. And the case wasn't solved until 30 plus years later based on DNA. And it was the type of thing that really gets me going where it's like, okay, we got the DNA profile, but it, it comes back to this family. And it's either, you know, it's the son of the, this person and there's these three people and we have to go get the, I mean, that's where I'm on the wild goose chase of like, put me in the, put me in the car with the FBI person right. and I will be the one who, who sees the person spit out their gum, grab it from the side of the road <laughs> <laughs> Take it, put it in a little Ziploc bag, and I'm going to help you solve that case. I mean, that's where I'm always like, man, I miss my calling. Yes. This episode that Jess was referring to was with Betty Buckley and her brother, Norman Buckley. And Betty, like Jess said, just said on our show, I should, I should have been in the CIA. I miss my calling. So Jess and Betty should be in the CIA together, apparently. Um, right. Honestly, mm-hmm. honestly, honey, any woman could be. The w- women are like the CIA. Mm-hmm. Right, women really dumb. Are. Men are dumb. like we don't <laughs> see. You should see me try. My wife will ask me, "So how are you out there trying to solve murders when you can't figure out where the pickles are in the fridge when they're right there? Like move something, <laughs> asshole, and they're right behind it." <laughs> oh, Bob, multitasking is a skill. Yeah, I know. Trust me, but I always say like women are the CIA because my best friend, I could tell her something like, "You know, I met a guy six years ago at a burger joint." And I, I can't remember. And she'll be like, she'll go on the computer. And then two hours later, she's like, it's Bill Swenson. And you met him at this place. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm just, it, it never ceases to amaze me. The powers that, that uh, some ladies have that really could lend themselves to the CIA. And I've always wanted to do that. But, but my point is, like, the advancement, and we, we were discussing, uh, we had a sort of an informational phone call with a NYPD, um, retired NYPD uh, forensics detective, who was saying, you know, they, like you said, Bob, not a lot of uh, investigators or police, you know, detectives and et cetera, thought to save any of it at the time. Because they couldn't do anything with it back then. Yeah, you can't do anything with it. He's like, people forgot about it. You know, any time that we're looking at, you know, any cases, you know, John Lennon or, you know, he, you know, has studied these New York City cases for a long time, a lot of stuff wasn't saved. Nobody had the the ability to even test anything. Right. I, I always imagine, and it's it's probably inappropriate the way I think about it, but I think back in the, like, how many cases back then would the police go in and in the 70s and be like, oh, I wish the killer had bled somewhere because, you know, they did blood typing then at least, you know, I wish the killer had bled somewhere so we could have some evidence. All we have is this semen all over the place. What are we going to do with that? (laughs) 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 Oh, my. But yes. In in the 2020 detectives, no. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Can you imagine? And that's the type of thing. And then you realize like she was, uh, Jen was just saying this Texas case with Betty Buckley, you know, the killer after they did the DNA profiling, turns out he was living in the same town a mile away from where the murder took place 30 plus years ago. And that's where it, he had been living, this upstanding member of society. And you just, it, it blows your mind. It just blows your mind that, that this little, you know, they like recovered a cigarette or something and it, boom, it was him. That gets caught with a cigarette. Well, we are coming to the conclusion of this very fun conversation. I've loved having you, you ladies on. But but there's there's a couple things I want to circle back to real quick before we close things up. One very quickly, uh, working with Harvey Weinstein. Yes, Bob. Yes, 
Uh, yeah, my, my sophomore Broadway show was Finding Neverland, which was a film produced by Harvey, you know, before it became a Broadway show. And it was his, it was his, um, entrance into the Broadway world of being a Broadway producer. I can't say that he should ever do that again, nor do I believe he will. But, uh, not, not the best, not the best boss. Not a great guy. And not a great guy. There were, there were several, you know, several moments where, where you just sort of wanted to run out of the room but uh not the most um warm fuzzy experience and if i could say you know seeing all the things that have happened um since then in his life i'm not surprised by any of them that was the one question i was going to ask is you having worked with him when all this finally comes out comes to light yeah the things that he's done were you like oh not harvey no No, are you kidding at all I mean, there were there were there were things. There was stuff in the New York Post when we were doing the show of of um, stories like this. But uh, a woman or a model or a you know you know a fill in the blank kind of thing you know came out and said this this happened to me. But back then it was more like okay, what are we going to do for damage control? And then you know all of a sudden such and such person would like show up at our show. We were like okay. So that's where I was like, when all the when all the proverbial should hit the fan, excuse moi. But I was like, this is the most unsurprising thing that's ever happened in America um, that that I've ever experienced. And one other quick question: uh, How long did it take to get the green makeup on every day? You mentioned that like an hour ago, and it's been bothering me ever since. Oh, how long you must have had to stand there? You know, I can't possibly let it bother you because, uh, believe me, it also bothered me. Um, but I loved it, but I, it takes about a half an hour. Um, you sit in a chair, you have a makeup artist, but I'll tell you what, that is, that shit is hard to get off your face. And I would, you, there's, we call it the green halo. It's just left around your head in every hat that I own. This is not even remotely sarcastic or a joke. There is green all over everything I have now over a year later of me leaving From on that, where the hairline met the skin oh yes I've, oh yes i've had to explain to so many people if i walked into a drugstore when they were like what happened to you i get that i'm <laughs> nothing nothing bad hair bad hair dye job bad, bad hair dye job right all right and then uh the last task before we wrap things up is did you name my ficus um i'm naming him frankie ficus i was gonna say frankie ficus no you were not I was just thinking Frankie Ficus. Syzygy. So I think I think that's it. I'm a psychic. This is now officially Frankie oh, the Ficus. Oh, Yay. Frankie Ficus, Flora Dern, baby. We're in business. <laughs> and with that, their names are Jennifer Samard and Jessica Vosk. They are Broadway stars, true crime podcaster extraordinaires, and their show is called Killing It on Broadway. Please check it out. It's awesome. They've already got like 24 episodes out in a year, and it very well could be your next big true crime binge. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for Thank having you. us. We, we are very lucky. We're two yeah. lucky ladies. We feel really fortunate. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. 
Our website, truecrimebinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of createdintandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.